Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Now, this week marks the 14th anniversary of the Northern Territory intervention, a part of our recent history which wasn't so long ago but seems like it's slipping from the collective memory of the country. It was a point in our history where we had bipartisan support for from both major parties to agree basically to eradicate the notion of self-determination. Has the intervention worked over the, you know, the subsequent 14 years? Well, our guest tonight says no, and I have to say that I agree with him. Uh, Emeritus Professor John Altman is from the ANU College of Arts and Social Sciences and has penned a piece in ARENA entitled Lest We Forget the Harmful Policy Legacies of the Northern Territory Intervention. And I'm happy to say that John is on the line now to have a yarn with us about all this. John, welcome to the mission. Thank you very much, Daniel. A very appropriately uh, titled show for what we're going to talk about tonight. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, let's start. At, let's start at the beginning with this. We we of a certain age remember the intervention, but I think a lot of us would have forgotten what actually instigated it and what the the I guess the the, the causal elements in a political sense were that uh, created the environment where this could happen. Um, what was the political climate and what were the causal factors used to justify the intervention in the first place? Well, the Children of Sacred Report um, was definitely, you know, the immediate trigger for the intervention. And that report um, basically said that, um, you know, there are a lot of uh, children in the Northern Territory uh, living in remote communities who were... Um, deeply disadvantaged. Uh, there was certainly a reference to um, sexual and physical abuse of these children. Um, and, you know, the picture that was painted uh, was that, um, you know, these uh, communities were dysfunctional. Uh, their parents, uh, many of whom uh, are welfare dependent because of the fact that they live in remote Australia, uh, are not fit to look after their children. Um, and there was just a, a, an overarching sense um, that there was uh, an, uh, an emergency and the Commonwealth government, uh, surprisingly, uh, from Canberra, uh, decided that it would use its uh, constitutional powers um, under uh, Section 122 of the Australian Constitution to intervene directly into the Northern Territory, um, into um, the lives of individual Indigenous people, living in 73 remote communities that were deemed prescribed communities and, and a whole lot of um, measures were brought in to, um, you know, intervene, you know, very directly into people's lives, into their communities, into their community-controlled organisations. And, and fundamentally, uh, you, you know, the language was... Um, Stabilise, normalise and exit, uh, but the message was that the Commonwealth Government was going to intervene, it was going to fix the problem for once and for all, and it was going to show the Northern Territory Government and Indigenous uh, people um, you know, how this was going to be done. 
And the decision and the implementation of that decision were made up in the context of uh, an upcoming election. And uh, a lot of a lot of people have compared Howard's response to that report to as uh, a similar in approach to the way that he handled the, the Tampa crisis. And he was going to use that as a political wedge in which he could actually wedge the Labor opposition into not coming along for the ride and then use that to... to, to beat them around the head in the lead up to the election. Is that is that a fair reading of the, the politics of it? Look, I think it's a very fair reading, and it's more than that. It's factually correct, because the day after uh, the intervention, Alexander Downer went on the Insiders program on ABC uh, television and, in fact, said that, um, you know, the Howard government was advised that, um, you know, its um, electoral popularity was a, a nadir, it need to be. It needed to be show, you know, some decisive action in some area, and and very sadly, I think, um, you know, uh, politically uh, disempowered, you know, um, demographically small populations of Indigenous people were really picked off um, to, you know, basically be uh, this um, demonstration of of how decisive uh, the government could be, but but equally sadly, I think. Um, you know, the uh, Labor opposition under Kevin Rudd, you know, very concerned uh, to be politically wedged by the Howard government's intervention. Again, recalling that this was an intervention, you know, to, um, you know, improve the circumstances of communities to save children, you know, from, you know, e- extraordinary um, hardship, uh, you know, from intolerable uh, living conditions you know, the, the opposition was very reluctant to speak out against this national emergency. And again, that language, yeah. national emergency, you know, the, the images, military intervention, you know, we, you, you, you know, the tanks didn't roll into the communities, but some of the images we saw on the television and people in remote communities themselves saw, because even though they live remotely, they do have access to television, was of a military intervention into their lives. Yeah, I remember cameras being at the ready and news crews being at the ready as the the army crossed the border. You know, with their military t- um, trucks in their in their camouflage and their fatigues, on their way to save the communities from the horrendous threats um, within. You write in the piece, John, that um, what it what it actually was was just uh, a reemergence of the idea of assimilation, which had pretty much been abandoned by governments across the place. In, in the early 70s. But this wasn't the first time that um, a federal or territorial government had tried to assimilate Aboriginal people. You, you talk about the idea of assimilation and, and the approach to get people, Aboriginal people, assimilated into the rest of the population as kind of being at its peak back in the 50s. Yes, in 1951, um, the Commonwealth government basically adopted the policy of assimilation for um Indigenous Australians, particularly those living remotely. And again, like like the Northern Territory intervention, because in the 1950s, the Commonwealth administered the Northern Territory. It was a territory, not a state. And they basically, um, you know, were going to show how uh, remote living people, you know, many of whom were living at or even beyond the frontier up to the Second World War, were going to be assimilated, trained to live as mainstream Australians. And and the way that they were going to do that, and that was my reference to the your show, The Mission, was using, um, you know, these uh, um, 
small settlements that had been established in the Northern Territory, government settlements and missions, where Indigenous people had been centralised um, to basically um, show how they would, um, you know, train them for assimilation into the mainstream economy and society. And, and what that basically meant, you know, was that uh, these very small remote places that often had no, uh, you know, capitalist economy, you know, um, were going to become demonstration places where people, you know, this is literally what happened. I mean, there were demonstration mm. houses, um, you know, people, um, you know, schools were introduced, people were being trained for mainstream work, uh, economic developments, um, you know, projects were set up. But, but by the 1970s, you know, after two decades, um, all of this had failed and Indigenous people, you know, were not, um, you know, adapting and adopting Western norms and values. They were resisting uh, that assimilation um, and they were continuing, um, you know, to adhere to norms and values and traditions and customs that for them were still, you know, um, very immediate and, and these, these are values that they held very dear. And so from the 1970s, it was recognised that, you know, the assimilation era had been a failure. Um, and, of course, by the 1970s, Australia was start, starting to become less white Australia and more multicultural. And so there was a shift uh, to a notion of self-determination, which subsequently became self-management. But there was just a recognition that just as Australia was decolonising from places like Papua New Guinea and other overseas interests that it had, um, it needed to decolonise uh, from the Northern Territory. Um, and so there the, was um, a, a... Sorry, Dan. Sorry, sorry John. Um, I, I guess that the, the, the handbook had been written for the federal government back in the 50s with the acts of assimilations by various um, colonies and, and then um, subsequently state governments around the place, particularly here in South East um, Australia, where yep. there were, you know, attempts to, uh, um, more than attempts to not only assimilate uh, Aboriginal people, but in some instances to actually breed them out. Um, and so we get to 1972, and I'm guessing we get to 1972 and this, this notion of self-determination starts to re-emerge because it had already um, been on places like Corrandirk and uh, Kamragunja where the people there had advocated long and hard for, for um, uh, self-determination. But in 1972, as Australia changed and a new government came in with the Gough Whitlam government, um, it re-emerged as um, something as an entity of its own. But you argue in your piece that one of the problems with self-determination is that, that it's never really been properly funded. Well, I think that's dead right. We hear a lot about Indigenous expenditure. But, of course, you know, self-determination um, basically was plonked on Aboriginal people who were lived in these, living in these remote settlements uh, that had been government uh, settlements and missions. But these places had been um, grossly under-resourced by mainstream Australian standards. Um, and so suddenly, uh, you know, people were said, OK, you know, the government said to people, OK, you can fix your own problems, uh, but on any um, equitable needs base basis, um, you know, the, the funding to these places was inadequate. Um, and, and, of course, government always c kept control of, of these communities. So 
while the, the notion of self-determination was there, um, you know, the agenda remained normalising, mainstreaming, integrating. Um, and, you know, so if you like, there was a policy rhetoric around self-determination and self-management, um, but, but the real means to achieve that uh, you know, weren't weren't provided to these communities and people, and and of course, alongside uh, self determination, uh, you did have land rights. You did have the Racial Discrimination Act introduced that said Aboriginal people could not be treated differently from other Australians, and you did have a relaxing of the you know movement restrictions on in Indigenous people. So you saw a lot of people going back with land rights to live at homelands and outstations, and again, the more remotely. Uh, people lived, the less likely it was that they would uh, live like mainstream Australians. You know, people in the middle of the desert or in the middle of Arnhem Land were not going to live like people in Sydney. But but the metrics to measure success or failure kept on being those social indicators that compared Indigenous people living remotely with mainstream Australians, mainly living in metropolitan centres. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. I guess, John, one perversely, one of the the issues around the buckets of money, as people like to term it that was uh, placed within Aboriginal communities um, under the guise of self-determination. Uh, we mentioned that the, the the funding was never adequate enough, but there was still enough funding there for detractors of um, self-determination and advocates for assimilations to use the amount of money that was going in to actually criticise self-determination in the first place as being a waste of money. Um, have things changed much on that front, do you think? No, I think those detractors are still there. Um, you know, the Productivity Commission uh, regu regularly uh, publishes its Indigenous um, Expenditure Review. And, and what the Productivity Commission does is sum the dollars um, supposedly spent on Indigenous people through mainstream and Indigenous-specific programs. Uh, but it doesn't do two things. One is, um, you know, calculate how much is needed to actually improve the situation. And the other thing it doesn't do is say how much of that money actually goes uh, to Indigenous people living remotely. In other words, how much of the spend actually hits the target uh, as distinct to how much of the spend is actually caught up in bureaucratic processes or in employing non-Indigenous people to deliver mainstream services to Indigenous people irrespective of those, if the, whether those um, services are in fact, you know, um, appropriate to uh, Indigenous aspirations or Indigenous needs. Yeah, having spent a bit yeah, of time this working is, this is the most place. unfair. This is the most unfair. This is the most unfair calculation that's made. And, and just how unfair it is, is demonstrated by the fact that the Indigenous Expenditure Review actually calculates the, the population proportion that Indigenous people that constitute 3.3% of the population contribute to the Australian defence budget. 
Incredible, incredible. I mean, I mean, having been around the place and worked with the Aboriginal community-controlled health sector in, in, in particular, the amount of times that a, a, a program or a policy would come down from a uh, federal government in particular that didn't suit the needs of those communities, but the back of the money was still lumped with the community to try and make a square pet fit into a to a round hole. Um, it's it's you know not surprising that um, some of these programs fail because the programs need to be owned by the community, but the community so often isn't actually listened to by the bureaucrats. Uh, Fourteen years later, John, we still have um, three in ten adults who actually have employment in the Northern Territory, and you talk about. The, the notion of racist exceptionalism still existing and still affecting people's ability to get ahead in life? Yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, some of the measures that were brought in under the intervention, um, you know, to control people's expenditures, uh, to make people work for the dole um, for more hours than other Australians, to force people uh, to go to schools that often were malfunctioning, um, and having just extraordinary levels of surveillance in Indigenous communities, alcohol controls, controls over stores, uh, controls um, over public housing, um, you know, social workers being in communities and deeming children failing to thrive and being taken away from their parents in, in a way that was reminiscent of what happened during the assimilation era, you know, all added up you know, to, again, yeah. an extraordinary expenditure, but, but one that didn't really have positive outcomes. And one of the things you refer to is the employment rate. Yes, three out of 10 Indigenous adults in remote Australia are employed because there are very few economic opportunities out there in very remote places. And, and, and the consequence of that is that people are um, highly dependent on income support from the Australian government, and that makes them extraordinarily vulnerable to being manipulated by the Australian government. So you have extraordinary high levels of penalties for people who don't turn up for work that is absolutely meaningless, and that is, you know, and 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 that requires, uh, you know, participation on a daily basis. Initially, when this measure, the community development program, was brought in. It was for five hours a day, um, five days a week, 52 weeks in the year. And, and then it's slowly been taken back as it became obvious that the over half a million penalties that were applied to people was just impoverishing them more and more. Unbelievable. I mean, we have we have 50% of the population up there that live below the, the poverty line. And what we saw throughout the, the intervention and that surveillance society that was created by, by the bureaucrats, but also um, that, that, that penalising of, of people every day for, for doing things that um, we're, we're doing, not refusing to do things that were, were largely meaningless, that meant that those people that actually resisted that environment faced exclusion and neglect and, and fell away even further. Well, they did, and, and I think that, you know, this, this is really, you know, the, the, the very cruel um, outcomes uh, from the intervention that are going on uh, now. You know, there's sort of these, these you, you know, we talk about a lot of things down south. Uh, we talk about constitutional recognition. We talk about reconciliation. But right now, there are these disciplinary measures still being put in place in remote Indigenous Australia uh, that are 
impoverishing people, that are seeing them hyper-surveilled by the state, uh, hyper-policed, hyper-criminalised. And this is is 14 years on. And and remember that the initial intervention was only meant to be for five years, was normalised, stabilised and exit after five years. There was meant to be, you know, equality of outcomes after five years. Yet 14 years on, we're seeing many social indicators worse off. And, and, and Daniel, I don't want to paint too gloomy a picture here because despite this, there, there is much success in remote Australia. That, that, that's the paradox that, that yeah. where, you know, community-based organisations have actually been able to resist, you know, the, the intervention by the Australian state, we, we actually have some very positive things happening in remote Australia. It's just that if the resources that are being allocated to penalise and brutalise and transform people were applied more productively to support what's working in caring for country and carbon abatement and in cultural industries and in cultural tourism, in service delivery, you know, there are things that are working and, and these things should be supported not, not, not only with, with the dollars that are being wasted um, in, in these draconian programs, but, but also enhanced to ensure that you actually are allowing people to self-determine the sort of life that they want to lead and, and to have you know, robust community-based organisations. Because one of the things that the intervention did was not only target the norms and values of individuals or at least those who were perceived to be welfare-dependent and malleable, uh, but it, it also set out to either um, defund and depoliticise community-based organisations or else co-opt them into the state project of normalisation. So, so, you know, that community sector that had been built up from during the self-determination and self-management era from, from 1972... Yep. yep, from the ground up, you know, with, with a lot of hard work, was, was suddenly eliminated, you know. And, and again, some of those organisations remain. And, and again, at the moment, you know, we, we're hearing about the threat to remote Indigenous communities from the COVID pandemic. pandemic. And, and where does the Australian and Northern Territory government turn? To the community-based Aboriginal health sector to help, you know, help manage, you know, the potential devastating impact of uh, COVID-19 on remote communities. Now, if there is a case study that can be used globally and how you deal with global pandemics, um, I think someone should write a detailed case study about the way the Aboriginal community-controlled organisational network across the country has dealt with this crisis. They were ready to go with public health messaging. They were connected with their community. They knew their community, so they were able to get those messages direct and in person to those communities um, at every level across across the country. Um, and we are now seeing the mainstream system turning to the uh, community-controlled health system and using that as an example to move forward as we try and get some of these um, measures, namely vaccines, uh, into people's arms. Um, you, you, you write in the article, John, that there is a lot that we can actually take away from the COVID-19 experience. Um, what are the, some of those things that we can take away in terms of uh, what's been happening in the NT? 
Well, there's a few things, I think, and, and some of them relate to the intervention. Um, firstly, I think that uh, your listeners would probably be um, surprised to know that there's, to date, been no uh, COVID-19 infections in remote and very remote Indigenous Australia and, and clearly uh, no uh, mortality, no deaths from COVID, which is an extraordinary outcome. But this is an Incredible. outcome that's not just limited, not just remote and very remote Australia. Across Australia, you know, Indigenous people are five times less likely to be infected by COVID than non-Indigenous people. So, you know, we often talk about closing the gap but, but here is a metric where Indigenous people are clearly outperforming non-Indigenous people. We hear very little about that uh, in the mainstream media. And, and as you intimated, the reason for that is that much of the community-based Indigenous health sector mobilised very early and, and really you know, sent out very clear messages about the danger of COVID, about the danger of travelling, about the need for those, you know, fundamental, um, you know, public hygiene messages that we're all getting, the need yep. to wear masks, the need to wash their hands, et cetera, et cetera. But, but this has clearly had an impact uh, in Indigenous Australia, not just remote Indigenous Australia. But, of course, for remote Indigenous Australia, you know, much of the disadvantage of being remote was an advantage when it came to something like a pandemic. So, so that was clearly a factor there as well. Um, during the intervention, uh, we saw governments relax some of those draconian surveillance um, mechanisms they had in place, particularly around labour. Um, so not only um, was this requirement uh, to work for the dole relaxed, uh, but also like other Australians, Indigenous people received the COVID supplement. And suddenly we had something that was almost like a, a natural experiment where you could see that if people's incomes actually improved, and if they're actually liberated to do productive things, uh, lo and behold, um, their situation improved markedly. People, you know, it's less reporting of people being hungry. Um, people were reported to be involved in going back onto country, uh, involved in productive activity like hunting and fishing and gathering, and, and just participating uh, in community life in, in a much more relaxed fashion than when you, when you have this hyper-surveillance um, by the state. And, and I think, sadly, you know, from the 1st of April uh, this year, that the COVID supplement has disappeared. People have gone back to live in, live in deep poverty. As you said, 50% of Indigenous people in very remote Australia live below the poverty line. I mean, can people in a place like Melbourne imagine that? One in two people living under the poverty line. And we all know that foods uh, in these remote places are extraordinarily expensive. So people are again reporting, you know, over 40% of people are reporting that in the last 12 months, they did not have enough money to buy food and they went hungry. You know, this is in I think rich first world Australia. I think the idea for a lot of Malburnians that um, they might go without uh, soy turmeric latte um, within the next week would be devastating for, for so much of us. Um, yeah, John... As, as you said at the beginning, this, this, this is just so out of the mainstream media and, and you yeah. know, it's, it's terrific that that arena, you know, keeps, keeps, you know, publishing material about the intervention as it's done from 2007, that at least some of the alternate progressive media continues to report what's happening you know, in Australia, you know, to somewhere between fifty and 60,000 
Indigenous people. Arena is a, a fantastic uh, p- publication. And you, you're right, John, that there's this real dichotomy in terms of the way we are, um, many of us are dealing with Aboriginal affairs at the moment. We have, like you said, we have discussions around uh, the Uluru Statement around here, um, down here. We have conversations around a Uruk Commission, which is a um, truth-telling commission that's been set up as part of the treaty process. Um, and those are all very important discussions that we need to have and continue to have to, to get some sort of semblance of uh, natural justice in this place. But while all that is happening, we still have this unfolding crisis in remote Australia, in the Northern Territory, in remote Western Australia, and also in parts of Queensland as well. Um, and so I thank you for, uh, for for writing the article, and I thank you for, for coming on the show. Um, one final question. The intervention happened 14 years ago, and it seemed that the political landscape was right for the taking in terms of that intervention happening. Reflecting on it 14 years later, do you think that the political climate, in this political climate, that such an intervention is more or less likely to happen again? Well, certainly the the laws, the stronger future laws that are now in place that, um, you know, end in 2022 and um, just on 12 months' time are less draconian than what was introduced under the Northern Territory intervention laws. But, But they are still discriminatory laws around income management and work requirements that uh, continue today. Uh, But but I do sense that things are changing. Um, I do sense that the federal government realises that when the intervention or when those Stronger Futures laws end uh, next year, um, that, um, you know, the statistics which we'll get from the uh, 2021 census will show that things haven't improved and, you know, we have this this framework of closing the gap and I think in relation to uh, remote Australia, remote Indigenous Australia and certainly the Northern Territory, you know, nothing will have improved between 2006 and 2021. That's a 15-year wasted period wasted and it's a period yeah. where you've had a totally wasted opportunity. So, so, you know, government is now talking about co-design, about... Um, you know, collaborating with the Indigenous controlled uh, sector um, to bring in, you know, different laws that hopefully, you know, reinstate notions of self-determination and self-management because Indigenous community-controlled organisations, there's, you know, there's diversity across remote Indigenous communities, which, again, Mm. we, we forget this. You know, there's, there's hundreds of small communities um, in the Northern Territory and they're, they're quite diverse and their aspirations vary. And the, the only way we will find out what communities want uh, for their futures and how they'll achieve that future is through having voice through their uh, community-controlled organisations. And so, you know, some of the, the, the language that we have about a voice to parliament is extraordinarily important, but but it's actually at the grassroots level that we need mm. to get give people voice and empower them, so that they can, you know, chart a future for themselves. Hopefully, again, you know, as I said earlier, with equitable needs based resourcing from a very rich Australian state and society. 
Very rich, but very small in any ways we are um, as, as a country. Uh, John's article, Lest We Forget the Harmful Policy Legacies of the Northern Territory Intervention, is available on the ARENA website, arena.org.au. Um, John, thank you for taking us in a, for a, in a deep dive uh, relating to the uh, to the intervention. Um, uh, let's keep in touch and um, hope things that uh, we can bring these matters to uh, the cities of Australia's attention and make sure that uh, things like the uh, intervention don't slip from our collective memory. But I thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Daniel. And, uh, you know, thank you to your listeners who um, hopefully will um, get a sense of, you know, what is happening in Australia, you know, 14 years after the intervention on the 21st of June 2007. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.